Hey, it's Dan, and welcome to Living Out Loud. A few summers ago, I was in a play that was being taken to Edinburgh Fringe Festival, and during the rehearsal process, I learnt that Vicky, one of my castmates, had grown up as a Jehovah's Witness. And that struck me as odd and interesting, but I didn't really ask any further questions. Recently, it crossed my mind again, though. I wanted to know more about a faith that means you can't celebrate birthdays, read Harry Potter, or engage in political voting. For this episode, I visited Vicky to speak about her upbringing as a Jehovah's Witness and her complex, ongoing struggle for self-invention. Vicky is one of the loveliest and funniest people I know, and I'm really blessed to be able to share this conversation with you. So, all right, let's start from the beginning, shall we? Mm-hmm. Um, or oh, just a broad overview first off. Can you tell me about what Jehovah's Witness theology is? Yeah, sure. So they're they're a Christian Christian denomination, and they really, really see themselves as the true Christians. You know, like when Jesus first spoke to well, the first disciples, they see themselves as a kind of the descendants of of that first group, and they believe that Armageddon is coming soon, and so that they, they have this responsibility to the whole world to be like, oh, watch out, guys, you know, the Lord is coming. So it's all very, all very exciting and very dramatic and very, not as against them, but very, we are this very special group that need to let everybody else know about this very important thing. And some of the rules include not being able to celebrate birthdays mm. or... Christmas. No. Yeah. yeah, no, nothing. No, why why is that? Why specifically the celebrations? Yeah, it is a strange one that and I always did find the birthday thing quite hard to explain. But it kinda of, it partly relates to what I said there about them being a very sort of not isolated group, but they see themselves as as very kind of set apart. Like there's a scripture where Jesus says to his disciples, You are no part of the world and on this account the world hates you. If you were part of the world, the world would love you. But as you're no part of the world, sorry guys, that's what's that's how it's going to be. And so they see themselves as if they're being, if they're very different, then that's a sign of their kind of authenticity. So basically anything that could possibly be related to pagan worship or, or a false form of Christianity especially, they just say no to. So they kind of look at all the roots of different popular celebrations I mean, really, everything has a root in something else, doesn't it? So birthdays, they look at the the use of the candles on the cake to like kind of make a wish and blow away the demons or whatever. Uh, Christmas, well, Christmas is a birthday, oh, so it's extra bad. But it's also celebrating, you know, like Saturnalia, all this kind of stuff. It was a you know a different festival that was just kind of covered over with a with a Christian veneer. So it's it's definitely off it's off the table, you know. Another one which I'm intrigued about is not being able to vote, mm, not being, mm, being able mm-hmm. to engage in politics. Mm. What, what's that rule about? That goes again back to the idea of you are no part of the world. You're separate from the world. You are, you are not citizens of this world. You belong to God's kingdom. Your loyalty is to God's kingdom. And if you go meddling in today's politics, then, then maybe you've got really good aims. We're not saying that you don't, but you're wasting your energy, aren't you? You know? All that time, you know, faffing about with all ballot boxes and all campaigns. No, no, no. You could be out supporting, campaigning for God's kingdom. 
I was reading up that uh, there's 144,000 mm. places in heaven. Mm. And it's kind of a two-tier Christianity, sort of a vision of mm-hmm. paradise on earth, but mm-hmm. uh, post-Armageddon where mm-hmm. everyone is obliterated. Well, the thing about the limited number of places is there, theoretically there's no limit to the number of places on earth. And, and their, their theology is that humans were created to live on the earth. We weren't created angels, we were created physical beings. And the earth was created for us. So the 144,000 thing is like, a, is like a cool addition that God made to the plan, the original plan, which was just to have humans on the earth. But with all this, all this, you know, caboodle with Satan and the Garden of Eden and all that jazz, he had to adapt and make a plan B. So now the rough plan is to have humans living on the earth with a select little group chosen who were, you know, particularly noteworthy, perhaps, to live in heaven and kind of just to, you know, be like a representative of the human class to say, you know, we know what it's like to be human. We've lived through it. So now we're going to help get things back in back into order with our human experiences. Mm-hmm. We can bring that to the table, mm-hmm. you know. Did you, did you always visualise destruction just around the corner? Um, yeah, I did have this sort of impending sense of maybe doom rather than destruction. And the doom was probably related just to my own feelings about the future in general. But obviously always kind of given through this filter of, of, of destruction. Yeah, I couldn't really feel totally honest with myself about, say, seeing my friends at school and kind of getting on with them, ha ha ha, all good fun. But then at the same time, part of my brain also believing that if they didn't change their ways, they would they would be killed. And I thought, how can like, how, you know, how can I really face them? What if on the day of Armageddon they look at me and they say, why didn't you tell me? You know, I, I felt that guilt all the time. But then when it came round to it, I was like, okay, I'm going to talk to them today. I'm going to, I'm going to witness. That's that's the expression they use. I'm going to witness to so and so, or maybe talk to so and so. And I just, I just didn't feel that it was really going to happen though. So at the end of the day, I don't think I ever 100% believed in Armageddon coming. It was more like that was the final piece of the puzzle, and uh, and I, I really believed in the rest of the puzzle, mm. but I just couldn't actually imagine this thing happening. Mm. And then how about higher education is kind of ruled out mm. as well, isn't it? That's a complicated one. I think I think that maybe in part that, that kind of advice against it comes from, you know, oh, it doesn't make sense, you're going to spend, you're going to get yourself into so much debt for something that, well, they think the world is going to end very soon, so why would you spend your time and energy pursuing education now where you could be educated forever in paradise? Um, I remember being a youngster and oh back in the day and um no there's definitely this idea about principle isn't it it's about well okay what you choose to do with your time reflects what's important to you when you're when you're a child and a teenager you have to go to school so that's fine you can do that but once you leave though that's your choice then how do you want to spend your time and my sister for example just always knew that she wanted to be a pioneer which is the name given to someone who dedicates at least 70 hours a month to to preaching preaching the word unpaid uh, right unpaid absolutely unpaid yeah there's only a small group of people that are paid for it who they kind of do it all the time and they're chosen specially by the headquarters and they're given a little sort of a little allowance every month it's not very much but it means that they can dedicate all their time to doing that 
most people have to just kind of make their own make their own way. So my sister always knew that that's what she wanted to dedicate her time to. That was her vocation. It was her passion. I was more like, oh, what am I doing? I wanted to go to uni, but yeah, it's basically involved involved saying to everybody, indirectly or directly, this is what I value. This is what I think is important. There were a few families whose parent the parents said, okay, you can go and you can study this because it's going to lead to lead you to a good job which will allow you to, to dedicate a lot of time to preaching. Like maybe, okay, you can become an accountant and work part-time but earn a lot of money so that you can support yourself and blah, 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 blah. But to be honest, that reasonable way of thinking isn't so common. You know, it, what was very, very common for Jehovah's Witnesses that I knew was to become self-employed as like window cleaners or house cleaners, something that was flexible, but usually sort of... Yeah, a job that they could do with very little training, but meant that they could kind of have the most time possible for for the Lord. So, the the main practices for just the majority of the Jehovah community, uh, would it be referred to as the Jehovah community or the witness the community? Witness community the witness yeah, community, yeah, that's what we'd probably think. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Does, what was it kind of like the daily practices? So you go you'd go door knocking mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bible study mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah and then meetings mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that that's that's kind of it yeah so what you're supposed to do um really in theory is to do some bible study every day maybe just a small amount every day like we we had a little bit called the daily text and so that would give you a, a little scripture and a little sort of explanatory paragraph afterwards and you would read that every day and maybe have a little chat about it and then at some point during the week, you'd have probably like a proper family Bible study where you choose some kind of witness publication and go through it as a family. Ideally, of course, being directed by the father of the family, sort of gently supported by the submissive wife um, and enthusiastically participated in by the, the respectful children. Yeah, and then you've got, well, when in my day as a kid, we had three meetings a week. Uh, it was a Tuesday night, which was a little bit more of an informal one. It was at someone's house. We were so, the congregation was divided into little groups, and you went to somebody's house. I hit the jackpot because we went to this little old lady's house called Jenny, and she used to sort of have a rivalry with her cousin, in fact, who was her neighbour, who had a different group. And so she used to. It was like this competition of who could put out the most cakes. So, I mean, I loved it, to be honest. I was I was laughing. I was like, woohoo, book study group tonight. <laughs> and, um, and yeah, and because I went with no parents most of the time, which I'll explain in a minute, I had no limit. I could just take as many cakes as I wanted. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah. And then on a Thursday night, that was that's called the Kingdom Ministry School. And that, that meeting is essentially like training for the ministry, for the door knocking work. So that was it involved lots of different like, little talks and demonstrations and role play. Oh, it was great. <laughs> um, and it also involved a sort of methodical weekly Bible study, as in of the Bible. We would read the, a section of the Bible each Thursday. And they, they still do that. They, they just read the Bible very slowly. It takes a few years to get through it and then they start again. And then on a Sunday, we'd have a public talk, which back in the day was 45 minutes. Now, now I believe it's only half an hour. Well, um, and that would be given by a man, always. 
Um, perhaps someone from our congregation or a visiting congregation. Mm-hmm. Do a little switcheroo. How many people are in your congregation? In mine, I think there was only about maybe between 30 and 40. I think in theory there were more people, but that was the kind of the core group that would, would come to the meetings each week. In a town of... Oh, I'm not sure about populations. I mean, yeah. the town is called Peebles. Mm. Um, it's not a very big town, but, I mean, it's still a very low ratio of 30 people to however right. many thousands, you know. Okay. Yeah. And what was the attitude to non-Jehovah's? Mm. Non-witnesses? That's interesting. I mean, what was the attitude? Well, in general, um, witnesses want to see everybody that's not a witness as a potential witness so they're they're not too harsh if you know what i mean because at the end of the day these are kind of potential converts and they do tend to operate on a live and let live basis in theory i mean their belief is is not live and let live you know their their belief is change your ways or you'll die (laughs) but but they do accept that that's not their place to judge you know that at the end of the day is reserved for god so a good witness will not be judgmental of other people. And in terms of being friends with them, though, you know, that's maybe their general attitude towards the state of their soul. But in terms of being friends, you're, you're, you weren't really supposed to have friendships with people in the world. That's what they're referred to. I forgot that. They're called in the world or worldly people. Um, so worldly friends were a big no-no. Because bad associations spoil useful habits. That's the scripture. So mm. basically, yeah, you could be corrupted by their ways. The only kind of acceptable friendship you could have with them was one that was maybe based on trying to kind of slowly bring them round to yeah, bring them round to the light. Mm-hmm. Did you have any close friends in school? Who- I did. Was there, and, and you were explaining that conflict of wanting mm. to kind of bring them mm. around mm. And to be a witness, mm. witness. Well, I had, I actually hit the jackpot in a way with my situation because normally what most young witnesses had was they would go to school in the same place that their congregation was, in the same town. That's kind of makes sense. But luckily for, for me, uh, from from up until the age of six, we lived in Peebles, that small town, and that's where our congregation was. And then when I was six, we moved to a different town. But that town had no young people in their congregation, and so we kept going to the meetings in, in our first town. So that meant that I, I never, ever saw anybody on the ministry, you know, door knocking, that I already knew. Because all of my friends, all my school pals, everybody that I saw in my town where I lived... I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't preaching in that territory. So you could lead a double life. Uh, that's where the double life began. Yeah, and so that, that was good for me because it meant that there wasn't really that pressure. Did, the, did your friends at school know? They knew, yeah, yeah they, they knew. I mean, my sister Hannah, the, the very sort of dedicated one, she's four years older than me. So when I went to primary school and high school, she was, she was there for a while in both schools. And she was extremely confident in, as a person, but also in her faith. You know, she would talk to anybody and everybody about it. And she was a very extravagant person in every sense of the word. Her fashion, everything. She was very, very, here I am, look at me, I'm different. And so I kind of followed her lead a little bit. And I also was, I was very confident as a, as a young person. And I was very confident in my identity as somebody that was quite different. 
And I didn't mind that, and I found it worked. For example, there was another Jehovah's Witness in my year at high school, but who did go to that congregation in the town. Shame, what a shame. Even witnesses thought she was strange. (laughs) Poor old Zoe. Um, So, yeah, it was quite a good example of kind of, you know, that that bullying mentality. You, You know, if you already are confident, people can't really get at you, can you? You know, if you're already like, yeah, I know I'm different, like, I'm flaunting it, yeah. then then I was fine. I honestly had a really, really good good school experience. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I told people about who I was, mainly because they already knew because of my sister. Uh-huh. So I didn't deny it, and, I, and but I also didn't go proclaiming it. Mm-hmm. But I kind of tried to mould it into this kind of, yeah... I tried to sort of set it within the parameters of kooky and different and harmless and I'm not going to push this on you, yeah. you know, that's yeah. kind of, that's, yeah, the, yeah. that's the road I rocked. Yeah, no, that's, that's a smart one, I think. I think so, I played it well, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> How about sort of things like radio, TV, uh, media in general? Mm, yeah, usually, usually we would watch it anyway, but it would just come with a sort of obligatory commentary, like, oh, Look at the world's ways. Look at the attitudes they have. It's just so bad, isn't it? You know, and I'd be like, mm, yeah. <laughs> like recording it secretly. Like, okay, I'll watch it later. Um, a, but a major, a major example, the one that absolutely sticks out in my head, and it, and for most young witnesses, will be the thing that they, that was the controversial one is Harry Potter. Okay, so you know, I was of the age when Harry Potter was out. I was a small child. And in fact, it was Hannah that introduced it to me, and I loved it. I I was just like every other kid. I was absolutely obsessed. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. Loved it. And also kind of identified with you. You know when Harry sort of feels that nobody believes him when he's saying Lord Voldy's coming back. You know, and I felt the same way. I was like, yeah, nobody really believes us. Armageddon's coming, but we've got to keep fighting anyway. Da da da. Blah blah blah. That didn't matter. At the end of the day, it was a. a dangerous book about witchcraft and it must be burnt <laughs> no so that was that was a big a big problem because yeah most witness youths weren't allowed to read it and i i sort of i even this is so strange i even convinced myself i didn't want to read it but just because i'd lost interest i, I don't really care which is absolute nonsense i was obsessed but it's easy to be influenced but when everyone mm, else around is mm. you know, because at the end of the day, um, a major issue about being a Jehovah's Witness is that you're always, always on show. You're always witnessing. You're always proclaiming, by example, your beliefs. Even if you're not talking about it at all, at the end of the day, if somebody knows you're a witness, they can call you out on anything that you've done or said. So You're being watched. You're being watched, either by Jehovah <laughs> or by anybody else. And so I never wanted to say anything that would reflect badly on the religion. So, for example, I wasn't that bothered about not celebrating birthdays as a kid, but I was devastated about not celebrating Christmas. I really loved Christmas, and I used to secretly play Christmas songs on the piano when nobody was home. Um, (laughs) And then be worried, be terrified that my neighbours had heard, because then they they would be thinking, why is she playing a Christmas song? Was that really exciting to play that? It was, yeah. 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 Also, it was quite a jazzy number. It was... (laughs) You know, a jazzy version of Winter Wonderland. I loved it. Um, And Rudolph, you know. 
And anyway, so what's the point of that? So I didn't <laughs> want to say to anybody, I'm not allowed to read Harry Potter mm. because if they knew me, they they would know how much I loved it. Yeah. And for them, that, you know, that was like taking away the one thing that was meaningful in life. You know what? You can't read Harry Potter. Uh, so I so I said to myself, no, I'm not really interested anymore. You know, which was crazy. Born into it, yeah. Born into it. How many generations back did it go in the family? My parents became Jehovah's Witnesses. Okay. They were some of the people, the mysterious people that actually respond when someone knocks at their door. And were converted. And were converted, yeah. How did they meet? How did they convert? Yeah, so they met. How did? They, in fact, I think that they met via an ad in the newspaper. Do you know? I think that, as in Little Lonely Hearts. I think that's how they met. Um, how funny. So my mum already had my brother, um, I think he was about six, and she met my dad, and to be perfectly honest, I don't think she really wanted to marry him, but it made sense in her life, and her mum really pushed her into it, like, oh, he's responsible, he's got a job, he should marry. But it was kind of doomed from the start, I don't think that either of them were right for each other, I don't think my mum understood my dad at all, and I don't think he could give her the support that she needed. So they got married weren't very happy together, were having lots of issues. And my mum had actually met a Jehovah's Witness when she was 16 and had been really interested by what they'd said, but had been told by her mum and her stepdad, if you get involved with that religion, you're out, you know, no help, no support. Uh, and she had a baby that, for soon after that, and so she, she really wanted their support. So she kind of forgot about it. But when they came back again 10 years later... I think, yeah, I think she was about 26, 27 when they, when they first made contact again. She, she thought, actually, this could be the thing that brings us together. Maybe that's what's missing in our marriage. If we had faith, something that was kind of bigger than us, it might bring us back together. And so she, she started studying. That's, what, that's like the term, uh, you know, to study the Bible with witnesses and kind of got my dad involved. And I think apparently he got involved but was extremely sceptical and was just doing it to kind of keep her happy but his intention was to show them how it was wrong but somehow one way or another actually they convinced him but again I don't think my dad like me I think he I don't think he ever fully fully believed it I think it kind of made sense to him like the kind of rationale behind it because as a belief system it is very sort of tight I mean, the foundation is kind of rocky, but if you forget that for a minute, everything else really fits into place. And so I think that that appealed to him. And so, yeah, they they started going along. And I think that they kind of were carried through by the novelty of the religion for a few years because it is a really strong community. It's a network. Suddenly your life has all this meaning. You've got answers to everything. It It all looks up. Then the years went on, and, and so really they, they needed to separate. They weren't happy. And in the end, they actually did separate, which was looked down upon, and it was, it was not ideal. What age were you? I, at, when that happened, I think I was seven. Mm-hmm. So we moved to the new village. It was a bit of a, okay, we'll move to a new place, and maybe that will fix things. <laughs> and obviously it didn't. And so then my mum said, right, I'm staying here. And my dad found a little flat in a, like a nearby town. So the three girls and my mum, we stayed in the house and my dad went to a little flat. Hannah and I, we would, we would go and stay with my dad for the meeting nights. 
so so like kind of he would he would take us to the meetings and we'd stay over there that night and then the other nights would be at my mum's I essentially had a free reign because what happened was my my mum when I was about six stopped going to the meetings and stopped being an active member of the church for one reason or another I think because of my my older sister's crazy rebellion it just all became too much and she just couldn't do it and she kind of gave up on life in general and then a few years later my dad died and so basically it was only me and Hannah the next sister up that wanted to still keep going to meetings because my brother had moved away my mum wasn't going anymore my sister Steph definitely wasn't going she well and truly take, you know made her stance against 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 everything every possible thing she could rebel against she rebelled what age was that for her she started about 12 at rebelling and it just well never really stopped okay. Um, <laughs> still going, still, going. She's still fighting the fight. Um, so yeah, my mum, because she herself wasn't following the Christian lifestyle, which for Jehovah's Witnesses is a very demanding lifestyle. You know, it's got mm. very high standards and it's very sort of particular about things. It's not really open to your interpretation. But because she wasn't following that, and in fact she was, she'd pretty much gone off the rails a lot in a bit of um, a wacky way, she couldn't then tell me, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. Were you judging her in reverse? I mean, I was, but I but I also, I've always been so fond of my mum. I've always been very, very forgiving of my mum. My sister Hannah, they came to blows quite a lot over that. She was just that little bit older, and because she, she assumed, in a sense, a kind of parental role of me, Hannah and my mum had a lot of problems. Mm. And my mum resented Hannah for being sort of self-righteous and, you know, looking down on her and judging her. And, and Hannah resented my mum for not doing her job. I, on the other hand, was like, oh, mum, come here, you know, and I just wanted my mum to feel good. Yeah. And yeah, I also sort of thought this, you know, this doesn't work out so badly, really, because I can kind of do my own thing. The fact of not having parents going along to the meetings actually reinforced the whole desire for me to go a lot more because it was a bit like my teenage rebellion, you know? It was like, okay, I am actually going to seek out this structure and this responsible kind of routine because my parents aren't doing it, but I'm going to go ahead and be okay without them. It was a bit of a kind of stubborn, I will be okay, I will get through this chaos. And then, yeah, all those childhood years and adolescence, she wasn't involved and she kind of she made a few attempts to come back but felt so consumed by guilt and felt she wasn't worthy my mum always believed but she just didn't feel worthy which is a real sort of horrible side of of religious guilt isn't it um and then essentially as i was making my exit she made her comeback so i know so it's sort of one for one so i think when I, yeah when i was about kind of 18 19 she started going back to meetings. Mm-hmm. Are you okay to speak about your dad? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, absolutely. So two kind of strands like mm. what was so you were saying that he was kind of a bit skeptical but mm-hmm. then kind of turned mm-hmm. around. And then what was the impact of his death on your like relationship with the faith as mm-hmm. well? Well, um I mean my dad killed himself, which is kind of the you know the confusing element in all this because I didn't really know why at the time, but I also didn't really ask questions. 
um, because my main concern at the time was was my mum's happiness because this obviously affected my mum big time. She felt so guilty and it just absolutely consumed her life. Um, so my, my, my job, my whole existence was about making my mum feel happy, mm-hmm. um, making her feel good. But it's interesting, his suicide note, if I'm not mistaken, just literally told my sister Steph to go back to the truth and told me and Hannah to stay in the truth. And that's all it was. Girls, stay in the truth. Um, So I guess it did affect me in a sense in that I felt... I felt like, okay, I'm going to carry on with this. But not so much it made it made me like years later it made me kind of relate to my dad quite a lot because when i was around that age of 16 i felt i felt like my dad you know i think i think that the way he felt was that he believed it to be true but he just couldn't live that life anymore and and he was eaten up by this guilt and he also had a double life on the go which we later found out about and he just couldn't handle it anymore and and he just that was his way out you know, I also felt I felt really, really bad at that age as well, um, but I remember thinking, you know, a few years later, like, oh, this is it's a shame because actually I could have related to my dad, you know, but he had he had nobody to talk to, and that seemed to be the only the only way out. Let's speak about your exit then. Mm. The big exit. How? Because that's a big deal, right? Mm, it's a very big green, deal. You get shunned, shunning. Yeah, if right? you decide to get baptised, because Jehovah's Witnesses aren't christened as a baby, they choose to get baptised themselves as an adult, in inverted commas, because it's a massive, massive deal. You're essentially signing your life away. That is what you're doing. You're saying, my life does not belong to me. It belongs to God. And I did it when I was either 13 or 14, you know, and... If you are a baptised member of the religion and you choose to leave in quite a definitive way, I am no longer one of Jehovah's Witnesses, as you say, yeah, you, in theory they're not allowed to talk to you. Other baptised members aren't supposed to even talk to you, like say hello on the street. So for example, my sister, years and years ago, when I was about 20, she said to me, Vicky, okay, so you've not officially been disfellowshipped, that's like the term. Disfellowshipped is when they sort of tell you that you're out you know maybe somebody's informed them of something you're doing and they talk to you and you don't deny it that's you being disfellowshipped um if you decide yourself that you want to be out then you then you are you disassociate yourself so i hadn't been disassociated or disfellowshipped but um uh, and my sister said to me vicky i know that your lifestyle isn't isn't the way jehovah wants it to be i know like don't don't deny it. Tell me the truth. Are you doing something that you should be disfellowshipped for? And and I was. I had a boyfriend. Oh my god. And I said to her, yes. And then from then on, she didn't speak to me. Even in the car journey, we were in the car. She stopped speaking right then. That was years ago. And over the years, we have had bouts of of kind of conversation where she's tried to bring me back you know Vicky oh paradise won't be the same if you're not there I really need you to come back da, 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 da. So she's still committed she's still committed yeah yeah, yeah. um last last year a few months ago my our, our grand died and so she was talking to me then uh, because it was a, an official family matter so that's allowed but other than that you know very little contact so then 
Was there a decisive moment when you said, okay, I am not going, mm. I am leaving? Because mm. once you've been baptised, mm. what was that process? Was there, mm. yeah, was there one specific point? Was it a process mm. of constant doubts and kind mm. of, yeah. Yeah, definitely a process, definitely a process. Because, yeah, as, as I say, with, with your kind of exit routes, really, you've got, you've got the dramatic exit of, the, of yourself. You know, I am, I am no longer a Jehovah's Witness and I'm out of here. And that's disassociation. And you're sort of, you know, scored off the list uh, voluntarily. And I didn't do that because that was just too dramatic. And also, I knew what the consequences would be. And, and I, you know, as an 18-year-old, I didn't want to... I didn't want to put my mum into a position where she would have to do that to me. Obviously, it's a crazy thing to say to your daughter. But at the same time, if that's what you believe, you believe it 100%, then there's every chance that she she would definitely go through with it. And I didn't want to be the one to rock the boat at such a an early age. So what I did is I just kind of faded my way out gradually. It took quite a while. So it started when I was still a teenager, living at home. As I got older, you know, hormones kicking in, you know, and just that need to, to fit in. Obviously, as you start to get older, like you, you know, people want to hang out more. You've got a bit more independence. And I think that my kind of double or even triple attitudes turned more into lives. You know, they weren't just existing in my head. I wasn't just kind of conversing with people or exchanging ideas in whichever setting whether it was a meeting school or at home with my mum it was actually you know a lot more time and more kind of it was more real but it wasn't real because I had these kind of split personalities and that just started to bother me more and more as as time went on you know and I just really hated feeling like I wasn't being authentic or honest with anyone you know, I felt like nobody, I felt nobody knew the real me. Nobody. It's crazily similar to a journey with sexuality and coming really? out. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, definitely. Having to hide something. Yeah, and then yeah. It weighing you down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely how it was. I felt that that nobody knew the real me because I, there, was all, there was these different facets of, of myself. And each one was real, but it wasn't, it wasn't the whole put together, you know. Well, hold on, I'm going to explain how I left really because I just started explaining it and obviously got sidetracked. So it started off in those early years of kind of making myself a little bit more scarce and not always in such a kind of predictable routine so that if I was absent, it wasn't so noticeable. So sometimes what I would do, I remember being 17, going to a party on a Saturday night with a Bible in my bag, staying overnight and then going to the meeting directly the next morning from the party, like, ah, double life to the max. But then what? I, but then maybe what I would do is not go to the meeting but kind of say that I'd gone to the other congregation, you know. Trying to keep the lies to a minimum though because obviously then you can get caught out. But then blah, 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 blah. I left school and I, I actually gave the witness life another shot because I spent two months in Nicaragua with my sister and I thought, do you know what? I'm actually just going to throw myself into it and see what it's like and maybe maybe the spirit will take me, you know, and I'll get really into it and it'll be just the kick, kick up the arse that I needed, you know. That didn't happen. <laughs> anyway, I came back to the UK, spent another... Why didn't it happen? Uh, why didn't it happen? I mean, I definitely... 
I definitely felt like I could understand my sister's joy a lot more. Because as I mentioned, it's so much more meaningful when you're, you know, you have this message that's so important to you and you want to share it with people. And if you actually never get a chance to talk about it and you're just always getting a door in your face or a polite conversation, but I, no, I'm not interested in that though. You know, it's very kind of, it's just constantly sort of, you know, killing your vibe. But over there, you could really get into it all the time. They were just lapping it up. So I could see how it was how it was fulfilling. But I still just didn't feel that I could honestly say, this is what I'm going to do with my life. This is what I think is real for me. It just didn't feel real for me. And that was the thing that was killing me, was, was that for other people it was real. And I didn't like that sense of kind of dishonesty, you know, like we're supposed to be kind of in communion together, joining in this faith together, this worship, and it's real for you, but it's not real for me. And that makes me a liar. Never mind the fact that it's ruining my life and I can't do the things I actually want to do. I don't even know what those things are because I can't conceptualize them, but I know that it's not this. It's not this with you. Like, we are not having the same experience right now. And, and in theory, we are. But it's not real for me. So then, so I came back home and I was hanging out with my mum for a while. And it was a dark time. But I wrote quite a lot of music and terrible, terrible songs and some cringy poems. And then, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move away. I'm going to move away to Spain. And I said, mum, I'm moving to Spain. And she said, when? Monday. And I just left. I just upped and left. And um, and I, my plan was to get a job as an English teacher because I'd done a little CELTA course to be an English teacher. Um, so that was what I was going to do. And then I got to Spain and I realised that it was a ridiculous idea and that nobody wanted me. <laughs> actually, that's not true. I was actually offered a job. Um, but meanwhile, I started looking on the internet for actual job adverts and found one in Uruguay and I thought uh huh okay let's go even further away it's better so I went I went away to Uruguay and just happened to mention to to the director of the like English institute I was working for that my family were Jehovah's Witnesses I didn't say I was I just I just sort of mentioned it in conversation because I can't resist talking about it and she t- took me to the Jehovah's Witness congregation in the small town and they were of course redecorating and they were all there and so I met them all in one go and meanwhile they were talking about me and I didn't speak much Spanish at this point but I knew that they that they were saying I was 28 and at the time I was 18 and I said sorry I'm I'm are you saying I'm 28 like, I'm only 18 and then just a look of shock on everyone's face. Of like, what was such a young girl doing away from her family? She must be protected. She must be looked after. And within the space of five minutes, I'd had like three different offers of families who wanted to take me in. Wow. I know. So, so yeah, within, within 10 minutes, I was going to the Oliveira family, which, of course, is so sweet and so lovely. And they genuinely, genuinely just wanted to help a fellow sister out. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really sort of threw a spanner in the works of my plan, though, of trying to escape. I ended up living with a Jehovah's Witness family. Who and then, were... did you have to pay them back by going to meetings? Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. So I ended up going to... I just did the whole rigmarole, the whole process over there. I was just starting, starting to make a bit of an exit by kind of dislocating myself more and more all the time. And there was the final step, hopefully, well, it should have been in Uruguay, you know, I'm kind of off the radar. And actually, I ended up being, 
you know. Back back at square one. But back then, at square one. Did was it was it exciting in a Uruguayan context, or was it different, or was it, or did you just feel like it was kind of one step forward, two steps back? I mean, it was one step forward and two steps back in many ways, but the the bonus was that. Um, it was all in Spanish and so at that stage Spanish was really it was just like a mechanical exercise for me to say things in Spanish it didn't feel real I didn't feel like I was lying if I if I said something about loving God in another language I'm like oh this is just a character I'm playing it's not really really me it's a Uruguayan Vicky it's not the real Vicky it's fine and so again I just did the same thing like my same kind of strategy of before of being really really super studious in terms of Bible literature, but all in Spanish. So it was just like a kind of study exercise. You know, I was just assimilating the language in a very strange context, you know, very odd vocabulary set that I had. But that's that's the way I kind of handled that situation. Emotionally, it just wasn't going in. And I was making my exit emotionally quite a lot in those times, but just practically not. Okay, so then you came back from Uruguay. Came back from Uruguay. And, you know, it, get, it all gets a bit hazy at this point. <laughs> this is the problem. This is terrible. Uh, but I just essentially kept the same plan going of kind of constantly being on the move, never being settled down, never being clear about what I wanted to do, partly because I didn't know. It wasn't that I had a plan and I was just keeping it secret from everybody, but it was really, as I say, I've never been able to make plans because making a plan involves being honest and clear about, I'm doing this. This is my decision. But because those decisions have always had, have always come along with a million questions about what that means, what are you doing, what do you want, um, it's always, and these have always had ra- like ramifications. I've just never been clear. I've always been evasive to, to the max, a su- like a supreme distractor, you know? Eventually, I moved into a flat in Edinburgh, and yeah, I, th- I remember that I wrote my sister a really long letter, and I said to her, "Look, I'm not leaving the truth, but I need to just take a break because that's what they refer to it as the truth with a capital T. I need to take a break. This just doesn't feel real. I can't. I can't handle it. I need to step outside of the system that I'm in." to be able to look at the system again. I'm so numb to it that I need to I need to just have a complete break from it to be able to see it with new eyes, you know? So I guess that was my kind of big exit in a sense. But I wasn't saying, I hate this, I'm out, I'm never coming back. It was more of, I can't, I can't handle life right now. I'm at, a, I'm at breaking point and I need to do this for myself. And so have you been officially disfellowshipped? No, still not, no. This is the thing. I mean, one of these days it has to happen because, you know, time is going on, obviously. If I ever decide to have children or get married to someone that isn't a witness, which hopefully is what will happen, it would be very funny if I ended up with a Jehovah's Witness, then these will obviously bring questions with them, you know, because as a witness you can't commit fornication you know no sex before marriage so if I have a baby and I'm not married I I can't see myself getting married for example but if I have a baby immaculate conception what (laughs) it's the second coming um you know these things or even just making 
an actual plan for my life will involve saying, no, this is what I'm doing. You know, it involves opening a definitive door and in a sense involves closing the Jehovah's Witness door. And everybody that knows me well says, Vicky, you have to do it. Like, what, what are you waiting for? You know, it's screwing you up big time. You just have to do this. And you're going to feel so much better about yourself and about life and more clear about everything. And so will they, because they'll actually know what's going on. And I mean, I I hear it and I know what they're saying. But at the end of the day, it goes back to this issue of I know the way they're going to react. And so I don't want to be the one that actually makes that step. You know, I don't want to close the door on them. Mm. But... They will see it as... They'll see it that way, yeah. Would that be your mum and your sister? Yeah, in fact, I mean, so I guess my sister doesn't really speak to me anyway. It's yeah. just my mama. Yeah. But uh, I'm a mama's girl. I don't know. What can I say? Right. And at the moment, we're operating on a, a really sort of neat policy of don't ask, don't tell. You know, so she doesn't ask me about my life and I don't yeah. tell her. Yeah. But then it's like living in the truth living your own truth mm. but that coming into conflict mm. with the truth of witness, mm. exactly, yeah. witness truth it's complicated I mean that conflict has to come essentially I'm you know I'm getting a bit fed up of constantly trying to just keep people happy right you know and just saying the thing that they, that they need to hear yeah I mean these days it's not I don't I don't lie I don't I don't pretend to be a Jehovah's Witness but I also don't ever kind of say no but this is who I am mm. Uh, and I think that that day does have to come soon because, you know, who wants to live like that? Who wants to live in the shadows all the time? It's made me yeah, realise the importance of having something you believe in and something to work for. I mean, it's also kind of scunnered me a bit because nothing can really live up to it. You know, if you imagine you grew up believing that you had the answer to all of the world's problems and all you needed to do, well, it was hard, but it was simple. You know, you just needed to just go along with the big guy, do what he says and everything will be fine. To have that taken away from you, but to still have the same desire, of course, to fix the world's problems and for everything to be okay. But now there's no answer. <laughs> it's like, oh, oh no. <laughs> oh, shite. <laughs> What do we do now? <laughs> so that's been the problem over the last few years. Just mm. adapting to this business of, oh no, we've got to get ourselves out of this mess. Mm. You know, yes, it's really good to be dedicated to something and to ha- and to believe in something and work for something. But when that can make you turn against your own instincts of, you know, loving your own child, something like that, then, it, then it's dangerous, isn't it? You know, and it starts to become like a cult. Bigger, it's bigger than you.
was just a dream. That was just a dream. That